Most of life, I, I think, is all about managing expectations. Disappointment is really the space that exists in between um, your aspirations, your expectations and your hope, and the actual experience that you have. If your expectations exceed the experience that you have, what takes place is you find disappointment is there. I think there's a few ways that we can be disappointed. One is this, is if we have the wrong expectations, if we come to something and we expect too much of it. Uh, this took place for me the first time uh, that I had what some people would erroneously call a veggie burger, right? Um, I go to it and my expectation is that it's a burger and whatever's in the middle is gonna taste like meat, but as I bite down, it tasted more like sadness and disappointment. <laughs> my expectations were high, the experience didn't live up, disappointment was there. That's one way that we can find ourselves being disappointed. Another way that we can find ourselves being disappointed is if we have the right expectations, but we just have a woeful experience. Um, I like food, so here's another one from food. I went to a pizza shop in Atlanta one time, and um, I go up to the front, and they asked me what I wanted. And I said, well, I would like a pepperoni and sausage pizza. Um, and they said, well, we can't do that. And I said, well, do you have pepperoni? They said, yes. I said, do you have sausage? They said, yes. I said, can you put pepperoni and sausage on my pizza? And they said, no. And I said, oh, well, they must all be pre-made here. And they said, no, we just don't do that. I think I had fair expectations of them. I just had a woeful experience. Once again, disappointment. Disappointment exists where our experience doesn't line up with our expectations. In a conference that's all about discipleship, we're all here in this room, because an expectation that we have that's not wrong to have is that we would grow. Anything that's healthy grows. Christians are expected to grow. Christians are expected to become more and more like Jesus as time goes on. Mark did a great job last night of reminding us that the normal place for Christians to grow is in the context of a church. That a church, in a sense, it seems like a, a greenhouse, right? Plants can grow outside of a greenhouse, but what a greenhouse does is it maximizes the nutrients that comes from the sun and it minimizes the dangers that exist so that plants grow best in a greenhouse. This is what a church does it it maximizes the nutrients that comes from God's word from God's people and it minimizes or uh, mitigates the dangers that comes from self-deception and the sin that exists in the world because we have people that are there to protect us we are meant to grow within the context of a church you look at the Bible Matthew 28 Christ says go into the world and make disciples Acts 1, Christ comes and says, wait until you get the Spirit. 
Acts 2, the Spirit comes, the Gospel is preached. Acts 2, the church starts. And Acts 2 through 28, disciples are multiplied. Christians are meant to grow within the context of a church. And according to Ephesians 4, pastors are God's gift to that church. So the question is, what is the role of the pastor in our discipleship? Here's what I found out. The only thing worse than unmet expectations are misinformed expectations. Where people don't know what to expect, they'll fill in the gaps and create their own expectations, and that can be tragic because one of two things can take place. One, you will either expect too much and hold your pastors to an impossible standard that Jesus himself wouldn't meet if he was here on this earth. Or you'll expect too little of your pastors and they won't be held to a standard at all. And you'll not only squander God's gift of them to you, but you'll squander the role that you as a church member ought to play in their life, not only to help them follow and be more like Jesus, but to help them lead the church to be able to do that same thing. If the pastor suffers, so does the church that he leads. And if the church suffers, discipleship can be stunted. And I'm up here because I want you to love your pastors well and love your church well by the way that you love them and the things that you expect from them. So the question I want to ask and answer today is this. How should I view my pastor for the purposes of discipleship? If you will turn with me to Acts chapter 20, and I'll set a little context as we get there. Acts is a book that talks about how the Holy Spirit establishes the church in the world. And one of the unique things that we see in the, the book of Acts is Acts is filled with a bunch of discourses, right? It's filled with a bunch of sermons. But as far as I can tell, in Acts 20, I think this is the only recorded discourse of Paul in the book of Acts that's addressed uh, primarily to a group of Christians. This is not an evangelistic uh, talk. This is a recorded address of Paul to a group of Christians. Acts tells us that he talks to Christians and encourages them and all of that. But this little portion of scripture tells us what it is that he says. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and, he's, and as he's getting ready to make his way to Jerusalem, Paul is eager to encourage the Ephesian church as he has all, all the rest of the spots that he's gone, but he doesn't have time. So when he's in Miletus, he says, the way that I'm going to affect this church and to spur them on is I want to pull their pastors aside just for a minute and talk to them. And so I want you to know that as we see here, as Paul is addressing pastors, even if you're not a pastor, don't throw this out and think that this is not for me. This is Paul giving them an orientation of what it is their role is, what it is they're supposed to do. 
And it is an orientation that he gives that has been recorded in the pages of Scripture so that you and I know what to expect. This is not a game plan that he's trying to hide from us. It's something that he puts out there so that you and I have an actual standard of what to think through about how we're to view and to lean on our pastors. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says this. I'm just going to read it. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. I think that that's going to help us to make sense of what we see here in Acts 20. And so I've got three points, really, three ways that, uh, three words that we're going to use to uh, navigate through this text. And those three words are this. Look, learn, and lean. Look, learn, and lean. When it comes to pastors, I think that their job is to direct our eyes to look. The author tells us to, to observe their way of life. Learn. Learn what lies at the core of why they do what they do and lean. Who or what should we lean on? Acts chapter 20, I'll start in verse 17 and we'll start here with look. Acts chapter 20 says this. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, you know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified both to Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the very first thing that he tells this group as he's giving these pastors a send-off, charging them with what they are to do. He says, look, look at my past activity. And the thing that I love about this is he starts off with this, these words, you know how I live. That it should be effortless to see how a pastor is to live. One of the funniest things uh, that, that I've seen in my life uh, is when you walk with somebody and they see somebody and they say, doesn't that person look like so-and-so? And they don't look like them at all. And so you kind of have to work really, really hard to say, I don't really see it. What Paul's saying is, no, 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 no. I'm not asking you to work really, really hard. Paul's saying the first thing that you should do is just look at the way that I lived my life. Look at my past activity. What I love about what goes on here is Paul is somebody that has accomplished a whole lot. What he doesn't say, what's not in here, is look at my accomplishments. Look at all that I did. Look at the churches that I've planted. Because I think Paul knows as well as we should know that the fruit that comes from our work rests on God and not on our own work. 
Paul's not broadcasting a resume. He's showing this routine, this way that he lived life. Fruit is not dependent on what we do. Peter preached a sermon and started a megachurch. Stephen, in Acts 8, preached what was probably a better sermon than Peter and probably had the first funeral within that church. So what Paul does is he tells him, no, don't just look at what I've done. That's all what God's done. Look at the way that I've lived my life. We're going to walk through, and I hope that we see five things here. Verse 18, Paul says that the way that he lived his life was candid. When they came to him, he said to them, you know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Those words, you know. Paul's life was lived out in the open. He's trying to help these pastors see that the people that you lead shouldn't have to be a private investigator to be able to talk about the way that you live your life. The way that you lead, the way that you love your church, your wife, and your kids. Paul lived very candid. He was with them. 18, Paul was consistent. He, he said, from, from the very first day, from the time that I set foot there, and until three years later. This is not a guy that only had touches with people in intermittent periods. This is a guy that viewed his very life as a gift to God's church. And so not only was he candid, but he was consistent. Constantly with them. Not only consistent, but compassionate, 19, serving the Lord right here with all humility, with tears. As you look at the life of Paul throughout Scripture, I think one of the things that he exemplified that we see clearly in the life of the Lord Jesus is not just his willingness to suffer vigorously for the Lord, but his willingness to suffer vicariously and take on the burdens of other people. Lord Jesus in Luke 19 comes up and approaches Jerusalem. And, and it says that he comes up and he weeps. That he feels their pain. He's filled with this compassion. And as Paul is telling them to look on their life, he's saying, I didn't just do the right thing, but I did it. And you saw my heart bleed through. A pastor should be connected to his church in, in the same way. Four and five are two sides of the same coin. And that was Paul was both courageous and complete in what he said. Look here at verse 20. You know right here that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul is providing them their marching orders as pastors, 
what they're to do. He brings up the fact, y'all know, y'all looked and y'all saw, I didn't dance around the hard things. I didn't pick and choose what I was going to talk about when I did, but he gave his full life to teach everybody, not just in times like this, but from house to house. This is why when Mark talked about last night, expositional preaching just being the steady diet of the church and the call of the pastor, I want you to know that all of us are cowards on the inside. We all want to dance around and not talk through things that need to be talked about. We talked about this panel last night about suffering in the life of the church and if I could go back I and start our church all over again I think this would be the one thing that I would tell myself two years ago so two and a half years ago January 2015 uh, we're sitting in our launch team and we talk about hopes that we want for, for the church and one of the hopes that I had to talk through was longevity we prayed that we would be here for a long time and so as I sat in the room with a bunch of 20 and 30 something, I went in and I started to talk about death. If we really are going to be here for a long time, y'all, do you know what it means? That some of us are going to grow old and gray and we're going to have to bury one another. We're going to have to bury one another's kids. And it's going to be hard and grueling. And at the end of that meeting, a bunch of the folks that were in this age range that couldn't conceive of that reality starting to take place. They came up and they said, John, you really brought the mood down, man. <laughs> I mean, we were filled with so much excitement about what we could do, and now we left here somber, scared to get into our cars and, and go home. <laughs> And do you know what I did? I shrunk back. I said, maybe you're right. Maybe I should have spent more time talking about all that we hoped that God would do. And then four months later, we were drowning under a tidal wave of hard times. If you are a pastor in here, one of the best things that you can do is not shrink back. And the discipline, the way that we see that take place is to let God's word lead the agenda and what he says, we say. If you're a church member and your pastor starts to say those hard things that are uncomfortable, know that. Everybody that says nice things to you is not your friend. And everybody that says hard things to you is not the enemy of your joy. Paul is saying that the pastor should be both courageous and complete, and it should be apparent. And what I love is what he says right here at the end. I testified to both Jews and Greeks right here about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. For three years, Paul saying, I had one bullet in my gun, and it was the message of the gospel. It wasn't primarily how to have a better marriage. 
how to raise up strong kids, 10 steps to financial freedom. Although all of those are good things, what he's saying is the most important thing that I want to make sure is drilled down in you from every part of God's word is that every part of it testifies about Jesus and Jesus himself, the reason why he came. As Paul says, is to die on the cross for sinners. So the gospel lies at the very heart of all that we do and all that we proclaim. And Paul is saying, look, you know that I did that. You know, I didn't shrink back from the hard things. Here's one of the best pictures that I've seen of that. Jupiter Hammond in 1787 is talking to a congregation or a church full of slaves. People that are in the midst of this hard suffering. And as he speaks God's word to them, listen for the repentance and faith that he brings in. Listen for the hard truth that he brings in. Listen to the courage with which he talks. Listen to the compassion with which he speaks. And he says this, now my brethren, it seems to me that there are no people that ought to attend to the hope of happiness in another world so much as us slaves. Most of us are cut off from the comfort and happiness here in this world and can expect nothing from it. Now seeing this is the case, why should we not care to be happy after death? Why should we spend our whole lives sinning against God and be miserable in this world and in the world to come? If we do this, we shall certainly be the greatest of fools. We shall be slaves here and slaves forever. We cannot plead so great temptations to neglect religion as others. Riches and honor, which drown the greater portion of mankind who have the gospel in hell, can be little or no temptation to us. What he says, he doesn't excuse slavery or their hard times, but courageously, what he says is, y'all, I want you to know the reality is that we're right here, but look, this may be God's very tool to free us from the temptation that keep prosperous people that have the gospel in hell. We don't have those same temptations, so there's no reason why we shouldn't live lives of repentance and faith. This is what Paul is advocating for. This is, when, this is what a pastor does to help his church. This is the gift that all of you have with pastors that let God's word shape the agenda and preach the gospel from every portion of text to every circumstance we find ourselves in. So what Paul says is look, look to his past activity, look to the routine, look to the way that he was candid, you saw his life, compassionate, consistent, courageous, and complete. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say look to his past actions. But what he does, he says learn from his present ambition. 
Verse 22, read with me. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Why I say Paul says learn from his present ambition is this. Paul is not after people that merely mimic his mannerisms. It's easy to look to somebody and then to try your best to do what they do. Paul, Paul is not trying to build parents. He's trying to build disciples of Christ. And what that means is it's not just going through the motions. It's about sharing the same motivation. Go to a parent and let him talk and ask him what? And he'll re repeat. Polly want a cracker what? Polly want a cracker what? Polly want a cracker? Ask him why, and he doesn't have any words. He's not going to say, well, I actually want a cracker because in the side I've got all of this water and what goes better than what? Parents aren't going to give you a reason. What Paul does right here is he provides a reason. He provides what should be the motivation and the heartbeat of the pastor that should translate to the rest of the church in the same way Paul's motivation and ambition translated to this group of men. Paul's mission was clear. His circumstances were foggy. Paul knew where he was headed, but he says here, I don't know what awaits me. And, and I say foggy, because he's not completely in the dark. He sees just enough to know comfort is not the thing that awaits me. Convenience is not the thing that awaits me. And if personal comfort and convenience was his North Star, then you don't go into a fog that's gonna look like it's all. But if personal convenience and comfort is not your North Star, then one, you're on the path to understanding what Christianity is really about. He says in 23, I, I know that there's gonna be hard times with this. I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. I think that what Paul lays out here is that he views his life as a credit card, like a credit card. A credit card costs about 50 cents to make. There is no inherent value in the credit card itself. What makes a credit card valuable is whose bank account it testifies to when it's swiped. So if I have a pristine cord in my back pocket that's all nice, the corners are all straight, there's no tape that peels off the back, and, and it's got my name on, on the front, and there's a tattered credit card that's been abused and broken, and it has Bill Gates' name on the front, what credit card are you going to choose <laughs> if you were to steal one? Yeah. 
if you weren't a Christian, but we're Christians, so we shouldn't steal. But y'all get the point. Yeah, 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 metaphors break down, y'all get it. You would choose the one that's tattered and broken because the condition of the credit card is not the most important thing. So one of the, one of the great blessings that Paul has in his life is that he suffered tremendously and in suffering tremendously. That's the way that God in his providence can vindicate his motives when he's trying to pass on these motivations. Paul's saying, y'all know that I wasn't in it for the retweets. Paul gives us an example and gives these pastors an example that their lives are to testify about something greater than life. It is the difference in between living for nothing and living for something. Here's the great litmus test to determine if you're living for something and living for nothing. If you live as if there is nothing greater than the preservation of your life and nothing worse than death, you're living for absolutely nothing. If you live as if there's something greater than your comfort, God's glory, and something worse than death, then you're on the right path to living for something. And what Paul's saying and what he's trying to pass on to these elders is, y'all get this motivation inside of you so that as you go back and encourage and fulfill your work in this church, that you're broadcasting that the reason why you are alive is to testify that you are attached to somebody with a great bank account, a bank account that can pay the debts of anybody. This is the beauty of what it means to follow Jesus. We tell people, you have a debt that you owe to God, and I'm going to spend my entire life telling you there is a way that that debt will be paid. Every swipe of the credit card, of our card, may cost us something. But the value is not in how pristine the edges of our life are. The value is in what we testify to. I say all of this to say, as your pastors testify of the grace of God, tell you the hard things from God's word, and you feel called to do certain things that God has called you to do, you are never to dread the places that God calls you. You're never to fear, especially if it runs up against the desires that you had for your life and you think if God calls me somewhere to do something else that I didn't plan on doing that it'll be a failure. You're never to dread that. Your value, don't overvalue your life. Spend it for, for God's glory, the gift to the church. God's gift to the church through pastors is not just their lips, not the things that they say, but that we can look at their life and it is embodied. Not perfect, but it's there. And where it fails, I hope that they would be men that not only preach re repentance, but live out 
that repentance. We would look at their past actions. We would learn from their present ambition. And lastly, I think what Paul wants us to see is he wants them to lean on the right thing. I'm going to read from verse 25 to 32, and it says this. And now, I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Pastors are God's gift, one, for us to look to, two, for us to learn from. But then what Paul says here is he tells them where to lean. He, he, he tells these pastors where to lean and to put their hope in. And do you know who they are to put their hope in? Not Paul. My wife and I adopted a, our daughter two months ago. Um, and so what that means for me right now is that I have exactly two months of experience with babies. Um, so when my wife is going to the grocery store, she'll be like, John, I'm going. I'm going to be gone for half an hour. The bottle is ready. She's been changed. She doesn't walk yet, but just in case she does walk while I'm gone, I've sanded down all the sharp edges of everything in the house. What I need you to do is if she cries, put a bottle in her mouth. When she spits it out, pat her on the back until she burps. Once she burps, lay her down. If you have any problems, call me and I'll come right back. I'm making sure you have all the instructions that you need and know there is nothing in this house that can cause you any danger. So if you mess up, it's all on you. You are in the safe zone. Listen, I bring all of that up to say that is not what Paul does. Do you see what he says here at the front? Paul says this in verse 25. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Paul's saying, you're not going to see me. Verse 26. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. I've done all that I can if things go south because I'm not gone, it's not on me. 32, right? He says here, and now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance. What Paul's saying is now I commit you to God and his grace. You have his spirit. You have his word. You have all that you need. 
And do you know what's sandwiched in between that? Paul's saying, I didn't sand down all the edges. Paul said, there is going to be danger. People are going to come from the outside and ravage the, the church. People from the inside of the church are going to be raised up and they're going to spout and speak things off in such a way to lure people into their destruction. And what Paul's saying is, when that happens, do you know what you don't need? You don't need me. Paul said, you need to lean on God's word. Paul knows that he's not going to be around forever. Paul knows that he is mortal. So Paul knows that the best use of his life is to prepare people to live faithfully in this world without him. And the best way that he can do that is to attach people's hope not to God's worker, but to God's word and God's work. Because God's word and God's work always outlives God's workers. That is one of the most consistent things we see in the Bible. Moses dies, God's work keeps on. Joshua dies, God's word keeps on. David dies, God's word keeps on. Peter dies, Paul dies, God's word keeps on. Your pastor is God's great gift to help you learn how to follow Jesus. But the value comes from the way that he teaches you God's word. You are not to imitate his strength, but his faith. His faith in God's word. The great gift and duty of the pastor to help people follow Jesus. And I want you to know this. I want you to have the right expectations of your pastor. Your pastors are men, which means this. At some point, there will be a transition. They are mortal. They will die. They are mobile. They may move to someplace else. Sin is still inside of them, and some may fail morally, and they will be gone. But God's work keeps going. And what a pastor does is he frees his conscience not by getting the whole church to lean on him and his personality and his work, but to lean on God's word. We are dispensable. God's work outlives his workers. If it's a certainty that I won't be here forever, the best use of my life is to prepare people to live without you. And let me just say this briefly as I run out of time. Um, one of the things that we see here very clearly is that the role of the pastor is to protect his flock. As a pastor, let me let you know, protecting is a difficult job. 
It's hard, one, because it calls us to courageously say things that in our cowardice we don't want to, but we feel like we're constrained to. Here's what else makes it hard. It's very seldom that people that are being protected feel drawn or feel good thoughts towards the person that is trying to protect them. God himself placed restrictions on Adam and Eve, the good God who created the world, who was perfect with no sin. They had absolutely no reason to doubt or question his motives, and God spoke words to protect them. And one conversation from Satan convinced them that God was somehow, that God somehow had ulterior motives for the protection that he laid out. If it's hard for people to trust God himself and the protection that he brings, I want you to know that there may very well be a time where your pastor does all that he can to protect you from something that sounds good, that seems like it's for your, your joy, and you are going to be tempted to think there is some other reason. And I want you to know it is, it is not for personal gain. It's not a power play. It's not easy. It's not something that many pastors that I know love to do. It's hard. It's, it's one of the most gut-wrenching things to tell people things that they don't want to hear for their good. And what I can tell you, what I would urge you to do, is to trust your pastors. This is the very reason that they've been left behind. If you find yourself at a place where you're questioning their motives, ask yourself a few questions. Ask yourself, what joy would they get from you not doing the things that they called you to do. You not listening to the teachers that you want to listen to. What joy would they get from it? Ask yourself, is it a power trip? If their lives have really been lived candidly, have I seen anything in their life that would make me think that they were trying to do this to me? Have I seen them be guilty of trying to do this to anybody else? If not, then give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that you are not the exception to the rule. God left the pastors here to protect. And the way that we protect is reminding Christians that the best tool the best foundation that can be laid to follow Jesus is his very word, the word that gave us life, the, world that brought, the word that brought life into this world, and the word that will keep us safe and take us home. Look to their past actions. Learn from their present ambition and lean not on the worker, but on God's word. Four quick ways of application um, as I come to a close as you think of ways uh, to engage with your pastors. The very first one is this. Look to your pastor. Granted, this advice 
is going to vary. If you're a church of 30, there may be more interaction that you can have with them. If you're a church of 300, there's some interactions you can have with them. If you're a church of 3,000, um, all of this is going to change. But know that if you feel like you have to be a private investigator to examine the life of your pastors, not just pastor, if you're at a church with multiple pastors, know that that's God's gift to you. And the pastor that cares for your soul and prays is just as much your pastor, even if he's not the one that preaches from the stage. Look to them, spend time with them, observe their way of life. Every pastor's life is a gift to the church. Two, listen to your pastors. Obviously, in the doctrine that they preach, but to use them as an example and as a resource. Don't be, don't merely be reactionary in the way that you listen. Be proactive. Talk to them. Bear your hearts. Share with them. Seek counsel from them. Seek God's word from them. In the same way that. You shouldn't have to be a private investigator to see the life of your pastor. Don't make your pastor become a private investigator to look into your life. Listen. Three. Challenge them. Here's what I mean by that. Ephesians 4 says the whole church grows together by what every part of the church provides. At the end of the day, your pastors are under shepherds of the church, but your pastors are sheep as well. You are not just recipients of discipleship from your pastor, you are participants in their discipleship. This is why you want leaders with humility, so that when there are things that are brought up, that they would know that we submit to God's word. And you have God's word the same way that I do. And if I as a pastor have done a great job of instilling God's word inside of you, then what that means is that there very well may be times where things that God speaks through his word, you help to bring that to light. Mark tells a story of years ago, there was a guy at his church, a church member, that as the rest of the church walks by and shakes Mark's hand when he's get done when he got done preaching and said, great job, great job, great job. This one guy said, and said Mark, great job, um, except for this one thing. Um, I don't think you actually preached the gospel in that sermon. And so what Mark says is, of course, I preach the gospel. That's what I do. <laughs> and then he went back and listened. And he came to the conclusion I did talk about the Lord and of faith in him and of trust, but there were ways in which I could make the gospel clear and invite sinners to put their trust in the Lord. And what Marcus said is from that time on, it's changed the very way that he preached. That did not come from a pastor on staff. It did not come from special revelation from God. It came from a church member that viewed himself as a participant in their pastor's discipleship. 
In my own preaching, one of the most helpful pieces of advice that I've gotten was from a lady in our church, a great friend, who sat down and what she said is, John, when you preach, I feel like all the things that you say are true, but here's one thing that I've noticed. You constantly tell us that we must follow Jesus and what we have to do. And she's like, that's true. But you never really talk about we get to follow Jesus. It's, it's, it's a good thing. It's not just an obligation that we have to fulfill. It's an opportunity that we have to not carry the weight of dictating our lives for ourselves. From a church member. So what I'm saying is challenge your pastors. View yourself. It's not just a recipient, but a participant. And lastly, encourage your pastors. Let your critiques uh, pale in comparison to your celebrations. Unless you've been a pastor before or been a pastor's kid, um, it's hard to really know how much uh, vicarious suffering weighs on the pastor. And so every chance that you get, it's, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything but time and intentionality. Find ways to encourage your pastor and celebrate God's work through them. I pray that we would look to the pastors that God has placed in our lives, that we would see their lives, that we would learn from their ambition, and that above all else, we would lean on the right thing. Not God's work, but God's word. Let's pray.